Our passage is Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. We'll begin at verse 8 for the immediate context to our verses. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices... God is pleased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, from your word we have read about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that our salvation is based on him. Thank you for what he has accomplished for us. We ask you now to teach us from your holy and righteous word. We pray that you'll teach us what it means to now, because of the sacrifice of Christ, what sacrifice must look like in our life. Teach us and show us that we might reflect these truths. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In verse 8, he reminds us that everything about our faith is based on Jesus Christ. It has always been the case that our faith is based on Jesus Christ. Then in verses 9 to 14, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a superior sacrifice to all of the sacrifices required in the law of Moses for a period of time during the Old Covenant era. Between the time of Moses and the first coming of Christ, these sacrifices of the animals and also of the grain offerings, these various sacrifices were to be given and offered to God. However, they were types and illustrations of the coming sacrifice of Christ on the cross. They were not instituted to save the people, from their sins. The sacrifices of animals never saved any individual from their sin. Those sacrifices instead were types and shadows of the good things to come. In Hebrews chapters 5 to 10, he has strongly emphasized this point that they were shadows and that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Hebrews 10:4. This is never the uh, the case always and only In the sacrifice of Christ, did Adam and Abel and Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest, if they believed and were saved from their sins, they believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ or the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his crucifixion. And this is the only way. So we cannot be saved by a preoccupation with foods. We cannot be saved with the preoccupation for animal sacrifices or with anything else. That is the point that he has made in verses 8 to 14. He has strongly made that point, and he is summarizing this point because verses 8 to 14 is essentially a summary of what he has said for 10 chapters, the first 10 chapters of this letter. So the question naturally arises, if animal sacrifices are no more, If food restrictions and distinctions are no more, then what is the sacrifice? What is the gift? What are the things that we ought to offer to God that are acceptable to God? The question naturally arises. What does God expect of us as an outflow of the redemption, as an outflow of the forgiveness of sins, as an outflow of the eternal life that we now possess because Christ died on the cross for our sins because we believe he died on the cross for our sins. So what is the 
sacrifice that we should offer to God? Or what are the sacrifices we should offer to God? I believe verses 15 and 16 answer that question. They answer that question. And it is twofold. In verse 15, it is the sacrifice of our lips. The sacrifice of our lips. And in verse 16, the sacrifice of our life. The sacrifice of our life. In 15, our lips. And in 16, our life. And in this way, this is no different than what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, and all the rest needed to do as well. They too, as a result of their salvation, were to offer lip sacrifice to God. They were supposed to praise Him and thank Him. As we read from Psalm 145, we could read other psalms as well, like Psalm 100, which emphasize the greatness and the goodness of God, what He has done to save us from our sins and how God supplies all of our needs. So they were to offer praise and sacrifice to God as well. And also their whole life, doing good and sharing. Did not Abraham do good and share? Did not Moses do good and share? Did not the many other saints of the Old Testament do good and share as an evidence and as an outflow of their love for God and the redemption that they possessed? Yes. So this is not a new teaching, but for us in the New Covenant era, these are the two ways that we are to show, show forth, demonstrate that we belong to Him. No, no longer with foods, no longer with animals or anything else like that that were a part of the ritual laws of the Old Testament. Now it's our lips and our life. Let's see this more in verse 15. Verse 15, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Him then, even when He's introducing what sacrifices we should offer, he reminds us with this little phrase, through him then. Who is the him? Through Christ. Through Christ. Since we have been saved by the blood of Christ, since we believe in him, since we know him, since he is now our Lord and Savior, since we acknowledge our sin and he has forgiven our sins, since we are justified by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. Since all of this has happened, that is the basis of what he's about to say. What he's about to say, in other words, is not a matter of working for salvation. What he's about to tell us that we should do about our lips and life have to do as an outflow of already being redeemed. We already are saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That makes it clear from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as he's summarizing here, through him then, he's already said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's already told us many, many times throughout this letter, the only way of salvation is in Jesus Christ. So once we have that salvation as a gift of God, as a possession that has descended from heaven and into us, into our heart, once we possess that, then the person is a different person. That person, that individual now has a new heart and he's got new values. He's got new virtues. He's got new perspective on life. He has a transformed life and he pursues the things of Christ based on the Christ who, that has already saved him from his sins. That's why he says, through him then. It's only on that basis. Therefore, what we are about to see is not works salvation. It's not getting to heaven because you do enough good things. It's not getting to heaven because you do one good thing or 10,000 good things in your life in order to get to heaven. He's not teaching that. He's teaching the very opposite. He reminds us by that by saying, through him then. So, if we truly know Christ, then how will our life look? How will our life be if we know Christ? Remember, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 16. So then you will know them by their fruits. He who abides in me bears much 
fruit, he says. So what will be the fruit or the outflow, the life, how will that look if we are in Christ? He says right there in 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. If it tells us in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, that we should pray at all times in the Spirit, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing, here too he says in 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What should be evident in all of our prayers? In all of our prayers, constantly, day by day, and throughout the day, we should continually, without ceasing, at all times, make sure to include praise and thanksgiving to God. Praise and thanksgiving, even when we are anxious, even when we have trials and problems and dilemmas that we face, we should do it with thanksgiving. See what it says in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in the Lord always. We have a forbearing, patient spirit, trusting that the Lord is near, anxious for nothing, But in everything that we pray for during our times of anxieties, during our times of trials and dilemmas, what should we have included in our prayers and supplications? Thanksgiving. He says there, verse 6, Philippians 4, 6, do so with thanksgiving, do so with praise to God. We praise God for who He is, and we thank God for what He has done for us. This should be included in all of our sacrifices of Prayers to God. This is the way in which we should pray. Always mindful of who He is and what He has done for us. Continually. Further, He calls it here in verse 15, a sacrifice. He calls it a sacrifice and in verse 16, sacrifices. Now, when we hear the word sacrifice, we know that according to the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, that some of the sacrifices, when they were offered by the worshiper, some of them, the worshiper himself and the priest could eat of those sacrifices. In some cases, the worshiper and the priest could eat. In other cases, the whole sacrifice was burnt or dedicated to God and nothing was supposed to be eaten. That's called the whole burnt offering. So, People wonder and people ask, now, what happened to the partial sacrifices that were given to God? We know that the worshiper or the priest would eat some of the sacrifice, but what happened to the other part? And then the whole burnt offerings, what happened to that? Aren't those given to God because God needed to eat or God needed to smell the soothing aroma? Yes, people think that way, that God is a needy God. God is waiting because he gets hungry too. God is waiting because he gets thirsty too with the wine sacrifices or with the water. That God is the, a God who is needy as well. He needs nourishment too. He needs physical nourishment too. Yes, those throughout the Old Testament who misunderstood all this thought that way. And pagan religions think that way. They think that their idols need the food. They think that the animals or the idols that they serve, they need the food. But that's not the way the Bible means it. When it's called a sacrifice of praise, when it's called a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice in relation to what God has first given to us that we give back to Him for His glory and for His purposes in the world in a partial way. We give back some of what God has given to us back to Him to display a correct understanding of what God has done for us 
and our acknowledgement of what God is like, who he is, and what he has done for us. That's why it's a sacrifice. But it's not a sacrifice in that God is needy. No, God does not need us to pray to him. God does not need us to give him money. God does not need us for us to give him food and drink. He does not need us for anything. God is self-sufficient. God is God. By definition, he is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, And even here it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever, 13 verse 8, it says. So God does not need us. And if a sacrifice is given to him, for what purpose? For our purpose and for his glory. For our purpose, for our benefit, and for his glory. So a manifestation of a true believer, a manifestation of... Of, of a true believer in Jesus Christ is that he, instead of using his mind, instead of using his mouth, instead of using his resources for things that would be for maybe good reasons, for good purposes, or even for evil purposes, instead of using them for those purposes, he gives up some of his thoughts. He gives up some of his words. He gives up some of his actions in order to praise God and thank God. In that sense, it's a sacrifice. And when that happens, who does it benefit? It benefits us. Because when we have gratitude, it teaches us to look at things in perspective. The world is not going to end today. In other words, when we have our problems, we think, oh no, the world's going to end today. That's what we think. But it's not going to end. It'll be just fine. God is in control. In this way, when we offer sacrifices properly, it helps us to put things in perspective. It's for our benefit that we offer the sacrifice. It's for our needs that we offer sacrifice. Not for God's needs, but for our needs. That's why. Further, verse 15 says, it's a sacrifice of praise to God. And to God, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father. When we offer these sacrifices, they are praise, praises to God. When the Scripture sometimes, not exclusively, but sometimes when the Scriptures speak of praising God, it usually has to do with who He is. And then when the Scriptures speak of thanking God, it's for thanking Him because of the things He does for us. Praising God is often because of who he is. Isn't our God, God Almighty? Isn't our God the creator of the ends of the earth? Isn't our God the one who created this universe miraculously and sustains it miraculously? We have no power to do these things. We have no power to maintain and sustain this universe, but he does it every day, every moment of the day. And in meticulous details, he is carrying out his will in all of nature and in all of human life. This is the great and awesome God. He is not an idol. He is not a false God. He is the true and living God. Yes, he is unseen and he is invisible. Yes, he is eternal. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He has all power. And he's all omnipresent. As it said in Philippians 4, the Lord is near that he is ever-present to help us, to enable us, to encourage us. He's always there. In fact, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We have the Holy Spirit whom uh, we never had before. Now he dwells in us and our life is different. Our mind is different. Our values have changed. And for these reasons, we ought to praise God. Praise him for who he is. He is the true and living God. He's not a false God, and he's not an idol, a dead idol. He is the true and living God. So offer praise to him. And when we offer praise to him, in reference to his attributes, in reference to his character, in reference to his person, then it causes our mind to have hope. 
It causes our mind to have peace. It causes us to have fervency in our prayers. Because if we think of God in those ways as the true and living God, the almighty God, the one who created us and sustains us, if we think of him that way, we're not going to be casual in how we pray. We're not going to be rote. We're not going to be casual. And we're not going to be offensive in that we ask God for things or do things in our prayers that might offend him. When we know who we're praying to, it changes our perspective in our prayers. That's why it's good, and that's why we acknowledge who he is when we pray. When we set forth in the hearing of the people, and even in our private prayers, when we set forth who he is in his true attributes, his true character, his true essence and nature, when we set forth that, that's when we are properly praying to God and praising Him, praising Him for who He truly is. Further, verse 15, he expands and he says, that is the fruit of lips, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. The fruit of lips. The lips produce all kinds of fruit, correct? They can produce bad fruit or they can produce good fruit. Our lips can be used to praise God or even to curse God. Our lips can be used to praise and thank men or they can be used to curse and condemn men. How should we use our lips? How should we do it? The way our heart is, that's how our lips will reveal, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, Jesus said. So if that is the case, then whatever we say, how we say it, if it does not conform to the scriptures, then it is sin. Our lips must, in terms of its Content and in terms of its delivery, they should conform to Scripture. And if they don't conform to Scripture, then it is sin. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Reminds us, he reminds us that to imitate God, we are his beloved children, we have been loved by Christ, therefore walk in love. And how did Christ love us? He offered himself to God. He was an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So as Christ sacrificed himself, his lips and his life in full conformity to the will of God, if we belong to him, then we should behave like him. And Christ did not practice immorality he did not practice impurity. He did not practice greed. He did not practice filthiness and silly talk. No, no uh, coarse jesting, but rather giving of thanks. Did, God not, uh, did Christ not thank God? Did he not teach us to be thankful to God? Yes. And he says that we need to be this way. Instead of having false and wrong things coming out of our lips, we ought to be so concerned for truth and righteousness, that that's what comes out of our lips. Truth and righteousness, not anything else. And further, he 
Notice he says in verse 4, giving of thanks. That's what should proceed out of our mouth. Another example of the fruit of the lips and what we should be doing. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 1. James 3 and verse 1. Let many of you become, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. James teaches us that we have to be careful with our mouth. We ought to be very careful in teaching other people, in telling them what, what they ought to know or do in relation to the things of God. Because we all stumble when we open our mouth and we deign to teach somebody else. In fact, he illustrates with the bits that control the horse's mouth, so that the horse might obey us. And even the ship, though it might be a huge ship, with extremely strong winds directing the ship, yet it's a small rudder that controls the ship in the direction it travels. It's the small rudder. And our tongues are a fire and set on fire by hell. And when our tongues are out of control, when our tongues are out of control, not in conformity to the scriptures, then it defiles all of us. It reveals all of us. Of course, what he means is the heart is corrupt. And when the heart is corrupt, the mouth is corrupt. And when the mouth is corrupt, it reveals who we truly are in our person. That's what he means here. And it shouldn't be this way. We should not be hypocritically blessing our Lord and Father and then cursing men. It should not be like that. If we are a true branch or a true tree, if we are a fig tree, we should produce figs. If we are an olive tree or an olive vine or um, a vine of, of, of grapes, then we should be producing those. This is who we should be with our lips, the fruit of lips. So, do our lips conform to the will of God according to the word of God? Do our lips produce good fruit? Further, in verse 15, he says, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Lips that give thanks to his name. Whenever whenever our mouth is open, whenever there is an opportunity to say something that has to do with our Christian life, it should be focused not only on praising God, but giving thanks to Him. Praising Him and thanking Him. Because we are who we are because of Him. We give thanks because we realize that we are 
weak creatures. We are creatures that could not save ourselves. We are creatures that cannot help ourselves. We are like a little child that doesn't know the way to go. This is the way we should be. When we have a proper, humble attitude toward God, then we will thank Him. But if we think we are superior, if we think we've got it all figured out, if we think we are wise creatures, the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth, if we think that we are that way, we're not going to give thanks to God. No, we're going to think that we deserve it. We're going to think that of all of the billions upon billions of people that God has ever made, that we are the best. And if we think that way, we won't give thanks. We won't give it in, in sincerity. We won't give it in truth. We won't give thanks to God. However, when we have this evil attitude, then it produces ingratitude. Ingratitude produces, uh, is a result of an evil attitude. Our attitude should be good toward God in terms of humble and realizing that everything we possess comes from Him. Let's see from Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why is it that if we have to acknowledge, if somebody presses us to such an extent that we have to acknowledge, yes, yes, I did receive this. I did receive this. I did not possess this. I did not come out of my mother's womb holding on to this possession. I did not come. So I had to receive it from someone. And ultimately the source is God. Yes. Finally, I admit that. So then if that's the case, if that is the case, he says, but if you did receive it, if you want, will finally acknowledge that, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do we boast? Because when we boast as though we did not receive it, we're not going to give thanks to God. We're not going to say thank you to the vehicle or to the person who gave us something. We won't thank that person. And ultimately, we will not thank God. We're not going to give thanks to His name. Further, Turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1, 26. 1, 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are, which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written... Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He reminds the Corinthians, which will also be true of us, consider our calling. Why? Because among us, there were not many wise according to the flesh. That is, according to human estimation, there are not many among us who are wise according to the flesh. Correct? Well, in terms of human estimation, we among the believers, we don't have the vast majority or 100% of us are not going to be the richest people of the world or the most powerful people of the world or the most brilliant and intelligent people of the world. That's not the case with us. That's what he means. So if we consider how God called us and brought us into the world, that we're not wise, not mighty, not noble, 
Why? Why did God do it this way? Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that why? He might nullify the things that are. God is intending to nullify the few who are the wisest, the most brilliant of the world, or the strongest of the world, the most noble and honored among the people of the world. God is intending to shame them because many times those people trust in themselves. He's trying to, as he says, nullify them, neutralize them, make them nothing. Why? Why is God trying to make them nothing and make us something when we were nothing? Why is God making us something when we were nothing? And why is God making the people who think that they are something, why is he making them into nothing? Verse 29. That, or so that, in order that, no man should boast before God. God does not want any of us, whether we were weak and now we're strong in Christ, or whether we were worldly strong and now weak in Christ, for whatever reason, he does not want any of us to boast before him. Why? Because those who boast are proud. They are arrogant. And they will never thank God for what God has done for them. They won't thank God. And God is intending for us to thank God. Why? Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, we are in Christ Jesus. Not by our doing, not because we cooperated with God, we participated with God, but because of what God did for us in Christ. By his doing, we are in Christ. There he's neutralizing and nullifying all of us so that we can't say to God, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for choosing me because I am better than my neighbor. No, we can't do that. We can't say that. Christ became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ became all those things to us. He's the one that made us We who were worthless, he made us into something valuable. He made us into wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's what he did in us. And then once he did that in Christ for us, what's his goal? Verse 31. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting in the things of God is fine and good. And by this boasting, he doesn't mean uh, being proud and arrogant in the things of God. What he means by boasting in the Lord is that we take joy in. We take joy in saying, this is what God did for me. That's why he says, giving thanks to his name. When we boast in the Lord, in this context, he means giving thanks joyfully to God for what God has done for us in Christ. Giving thanks to his name. Further, verse 15, from Hebrews 13, 15, his name. Why is it that we were created in this world? Why is it that we were created? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, 36. Why were we created? We were not created to make a name for ourselves. We are not in this world in order for people to look up to us. We're not in this world for people to praise our name, to give thanks to our name. We're not in this world for that reason. To the extent that we receive praise from men or thankfulness from men, it ought to be directed to the glory of God, to the worship of God, to the praise and thankfulness to God. It's to His name. Because we do know, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for 
his own glory. He says this also in 13.21, Hebrews 13.21. When we are doing what we should, because God works in us, verse 21, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory, the praise, the adoration, it goes to Christ and ultimately to God the Father. It goes through Christ to God the Father. That's where the glory goes, to exalt Him. People think that they are in the world for themselves. They're not. We are created, all people are created to glorify God, to exalt His name. And whether we are believers or unbelievers, we will glorify His name. Right? If we are in Christ, according to this verse, Hebrews 13, then we are, with the fruit of lips, we give thanks to His name. So we glorify God in that way, if we are believers. But even if we are unbelievers, we will glorify God. All unbelievers will glorify God, and they will do it by force. They will do it because they will be under compulsion on the day of judgment, Philippians 2, it actually says, Philippians 2, and verses 9 to 11, it says that even unbelievers are going to glorify God, give honor to the name of God. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him, God exalted Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is on the day of judgment. There will be a time when every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that means the angels, those who are on the earth, those who are under the earth, all humans. So all angels, whether good or even evil angels, whether chosen angels or demons, all spirits and all humans will, it says in verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even unbelievers will reluctantly by compulsion, on the day of judgment, honor Christ and God the Father. They will do so. So is, is it not better to be on the side of believers, to now be in the practice of glorifying God? Now, verse 16, Hebrews thirteen sixteen. The second way, the second major way, is to give a sacrifice of our life to God. Verse 16 says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's easy for us, for us to neglect doing good and sharing because we have this bent, we have this proclivity to think about ourselves and our own needs. Whenever we wake up, it's very hard for us to be thinking about others. Even if it's in our own family, it's hard for us to focus on how we can benefit and help and do good to our family, do good to our friends, do good to the people of the church, do good to people that we meet in our day-by-day -day activities out there in the world. It's very hard for us to think about that. When we have to go somewhere, we're just thinking, what do I need to do? What am I going to do? And we stay uh, focused on that task and we neglect the surroundings around us. Why? That's why he's saying here, do not neglect. Because we are so focused on ourselves, we need to stay away from ourselves and self-focus and focus on others. This is especially the case in these days when many people complain of having anxieties and depression. Many people these days complain of anxieties and depression. Well, what is the biblical antidote to this? What is the biblical solution 
to that problem. Verse 15, praise God and give thanks to Him. Acknowledge who He is and what He's done. And in verse 16, do good and share. Don't neglect that. The one who says, woe is me, my, my situation in life is the worst, worse than anybody else in this whole world, and nobody understands, nobody cares for me, nobody loves me, and I don't have a way out. And when they twiddle their thumbs, or they get involved with activities, or even with substances that harm them, harm their body, they intake things that will destroy them, why are they doing that? Because they are not focused on praising God, giving thanks to God, doing good and sharing with others. They should do good and share with others. If they do that, then their life will not manifest the bad fruit that it does bear. It's easy to neglect. So, what should we think about every moment, especially the first thought of the day? How can I love God and love my neighbor? How can I glorify God today? How can I glorify His name? Love Him. Love my neighbor. What should I do today? I need to praise Him, thank Him, and think about what good I will do to my neighbor. Make that a commitment. The first thought that comes to our mind the moment we awake. Doing good and sharing. Was not our practice before our conversion doing evil. It was evil in a sense that God never received any good thing we did as an acceptable sacrifice or as an acceptable work for our salvation. Correct? Because in the Bible, the scripture says, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. Our righteous deeds, that is going to work that is, providing for our families. As unbelievers, these are good things, but in the sight of God, they are evil or unrighteous because they will not grant us a ticket to heaven. That will not happen. So in that sense, they are evil, even if they are good in a sense or righteous in a sense. But also, before our conversion, we did that which was completely contrary to the Word of God to the commandments of God. We didn't love God. We did not love our neighbor. We loved ourselves, and we were our own God. In those two ways, we transgressed the two greatest commandments. As well, specifically, we worshipped idols. We did not honor the Sabbath day. We dishonored our parents. We murdered, committed adultery. We stole. We lied. We bore false witness. We coveted. These are the kinds of things we did before our conversion. But now, there's a change. Now there is a difference. Now, for the glory of God, for the love of God, for the love of our neighbor, we are set on doing good. We have to understand what does it mean now to do good and to help others for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. Firstly, the scripture says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, what is good for ourselves, we should do. Don't harm ourselves. Then, what is good for our family? If we have a spouse, what is good for our spouse? If we have children, what's good for our children? If it's our grandchildren, what's good for our grandchildren? Or if we are grandchildren, what's good for our grandparents? What is good for our immediate family and relatives? What is good for the people of the church? So then let us do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of the faith, Ephesians 6, 10 says. Especially for those in the household of the faith. What are we going to do to help and benefit the body of Christ? The local church and other Christians who are in need, who need our encouragement, who need our prayers, who need even our resources, our time, our energy, our skills. What are we doing good to help and benefit them? And further, doing good to others in the world, people that you meet day by day, we have to be thinking, what can I do? When I go to the store, when I go to work, when I go to school, when I go to these places, I have to be aware of how I'm supposed to be good to the people I encounter. Be good to them, be kind to them, 
and help them understand the gospel. If you have opportunity, say a word about the gospel. Pass out a tract. Invite them to church. Do good in those kinds of ways. Don't neglect doing good. Further, verse 16 says, and sharing. Sharing. Those who are self-focused, those who are selfish, they hoard and collect things for themselves, and they're not thinking about how they can use the resources that they have, the things that they possess, to help other people, to share with others, to those who have need. Now that we're in Christ, we should be thinking about sharing. The things we own are not just ourselves. They don't belong just to us, but they belong to others. How can we assist in helping others? In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, we have examples of this in Acts chapter 2. Examples of this. We'll begin reading at verse 42. Acts 2, 42. 2.42. We read verse 42 because this is the basis of their actions. Verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with, the, with them all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So based on the worship of God and the fellowship of the saints of God, verse 42, the outflow of that was that they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, verse 45 says. They realized that they should be kind and generous toward the fellow believers. Look also at chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. 4.32 And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. There's our term again, need. From chapter 2 and chapter 4 here, those who had a need, a true need. Now, we're not talking about wants and desires, fantasies and luxuries. We're not talking about that. We're talking about needy people who have a genuine need if you have the ability to help, then help. Help them and share with what you have. This is characteristic of believers. Sharing with those who have need. Also, in this day and age, we need to be clear about what Acts chapters 2 and 4, and even our passage here in Hebrews means by sharing. Sharing does not mean that by force... Somebody else, whether it's somebody in your family, somebody in the church, or somebody in the local government or in the national government, it does not mean that anybody by force should, com under compulsion, mandatorily expect that you give of what you own. That's not what biblical sharing is. Biblical sharing in other words, is not communism. It's not Marxism, communism, Stalinism, different names, liberalism. It's not that, socialism. That's not what biblical sharing is. Biblical sharing is the individual or the private entity willingly, voluntarily, 
gives to someone else who has a need. That's what biblical sharing is. That's what the Bible means even here in our verse. The way of force or compulsion, the way that some people do that, expect that, that is uh, stealing or theft. Remember, in our study of the catechism, when we studied the commandment, you shall not steal, that included the following. It included withholding wages, Leviticus 19.13 and James 5.4, withholding taxes, Romans 13.7, taking too much taxes, Nehemiah 5, verses 4 and 15. So in these ways, the Bible prohibits taking your possession, taking one's possession by force. But willingly and properly, what we have should be given to the needy, willingly, to the truly needy, and also in terms of taxes and the government, whatever a fair tax is, that's what should be given to the government. Not too little and not too much. That which is right. And then the government should use it to promote law and order, justice in the land, to support the innocent and the victims, and then to punish the criminals who exploit the innocent and the weak. That's what biblical sharing is and is not. Verse 16 finally says, For, because with such sacrifices God is pleased. God is pleased with our lips and our life, matching what Jesus did with his lips and his life. When our lips and life match what, what Jesus did, then God is pleased. God is not pleased with salvation by works. God is not pleased with worshiping false gods. God is not pleased by our practicing unethical behavior. God is not pleased with us making distinctions about food. God is not pleased with us offering animal sacrifices or any other ritual that we misunderstand or mis misinterpret. We are not pleasing God. We are pleasing God whenever our doctrine of Christ is correct and then our life and our lips conform to Christ. Is this not what is most important? Is it not what is most important to know what pleases God? Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Ephesians four seventeen. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We did not learn Christ this way. We are different people. Now we want to do what pleases God. We learned Christ this way, and we want to please Him. He says in Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Our mind now is fixed on trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. What we learned Christ to be, we are now seeking to practice that in our own life. Did not Jesus say when he returns, he will say one day to us, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Let's seek to please Christ with our lips and with our life. It doesn't matter who else we please. We ought to please him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you will give us true wisdom, true knowledge, true understanding, and also, Father, strength, power, and even miraculous power, the power of your Holy Spirit to have our lips and life be a soothing aroma to you, a sacrifice that pleases you for your glory and for our benefit. In the name of Christ, amen.